This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Hello, I'm Heather Maisels, Senior Advisor to Charles Russell Speechley's, and uh, thank you for joining us today. Welcome to our first podcast. This is the first in our series on charities and philanthropy. Um, we will talk about the trends we see in giving practices and answering some of your questions. We've been doing this from the perspective of an international firm with wide-ranging clients. Our clients are families with long histories of giving successfully to the causes that matter to them. Our clients are established charities, and our clients are young entrepreneurs and successful business people, all motivated to give quickly and who are perhaps disenchanted with the established charity sector. So our perspective is drawn from all these clients and every which way. We can see all different angles. We see successes, we see failures, we see dreams fulfilled, we see hopes shattered. Now I'm joined today by Sarah Rowley. And thank you, Sarah, for joining us. Sarah is head of our long-established and growing charities and philanthropy team. Sarah, COVID has exposed huge issues of inequality and extreme hardship, particularly with minority groups in the UK, in the US and Europe. And well, I guess we're a bit short of data in the Middle East and Asia, but I'm sure the situation is exactly the same then. It's obviously a good time to give. There's a huge, huge need out there. But from your perspective, Sarah, why is now a good time to give? Thanks, Heather. Well, the effects of COVID-19 on the charity sector and on the valuable services provided by charities and other not-for-profit bodies is clear for everybody to see. And there have been a few, of course, very high-profile public appeals which have been very successful. And those fundraising exercises have seen large amounts of money flowing mainly to one or two very national causes. But behind that, of course, there's lots of other projects, for example, mental health projects, education, the arts that that are really suffering and really need to be supported. So what we're seeing is that there are donors who are wanting to give larger donations and perhaps transformative gifts or they're looking to begin a programme of strategic giving. And they're in the main looking to support causes with which they have a personal connection or maybe a family connection. And they're perhaps more inclined to give more locally or within their own communities. We're seeing that they are wanting to give gifts. They're wanting to shore up those causes that they really value. And they're placing a lot fewer conditions on those gifts in recognition of the fact that core costs do need to be covered by those charities to enable those charities to take strategic decisions they need to take at this current time and perhaps to invest in technologies to enable them to reach out to their beneficiaries both now and in the future. Very welcome I would have thought to a number of givers because um, it seems what you're saying that the charities are becoming more flexible in meeting the wishes of the donors would would you say that's right? Yes. I mean, when people want to make large donations, often there's a dialogue with charities and charities are very accommodating. Um, obviously, charities have their own 
strategic plan in place and their own projects that they know need to be funded or those that perhaps need less funds but but there's definitely a dialogue to be had. And of course Sarah there are other advantages in particular to the families who want to who want to give to the charities because I think if you form a relationship with the charity and have a dialogue with them and explain what you're trying to get out of the giving for the family then the charities are very accommodating. With the families who I've worked with they've used philanthropy very successfully and have worked with the charities in order to get the real outcome that they wanted. And very often they want to include the younger members of the family in the discussion so that they're involved. And they see this as a family project and almost like family glue to help the brothers and the sisters get on with each other and all share a sort of common interest. And sometimes it could be the grandparents wanting to have a project which evens up everything between all the grandchildren by having this sort of common interest, a common cause. And maybe there's a link also with the business that the family is involved with or the business that the family owns. The business can also make a contribution to the charity, whether it's their operational knowledge and logistics and getting goods delivered more quickly or whether it's in what they know about branding or how they can actually use what they produce to go to the beneficiaries, to the people who really need it in the most effective way. So for many families, philanthropy is actually an asset management tool uh, in that it keeps the wealth of the family sustained for longer because it's not diluted by family acrimony, that the family are harmonious they work together, they're happy together. And very often the shared project is a way of establishing and instilling family values in successive generations. So I feel that it's a very successful tool in keeping family wealth together. And in fact, the evidence shows that the families who give most money away have tended to grow their wealth more because they don't lose it through unhappy relationships with each other and with other business partners. So perhaps we can move on now, Sarah, to um, talk about what is the best way of giving because different families want to do this in different ways. So if somebody comes to you and says, should I give the money in my own name? Should I do it through the family? Or should I actually set up my own charity in order to give to an established charity? How do you um, go about discussing those sorts of issues and determining the best way? As you said, there are different ways to give to the causes that a donor might want to support. So the, the first way is just directly giving. So writing checks to a particular project or charity. And that is sometimes the way that people begin their philanthropic journey. Often then people really want to become more engaged with those charitable purposes that they are trying to further and want to have more control over how that money is spent. So we start to have more of a dialogue about whether or not it's appropriate for them to set up their own charitable foundation. Now, lots of people prefer to have their own charitable foundation for 
lots of different reasons, including, as you were saying a moment ago, that philanthropy is a really good tool to glue families together. And therefore, the focus around a family foundation really helps to do that. So by setting up their own charity, they get direct control over those projects they want to support. They can enter into a grant agreement and be very clear about how they would like to see the money spent and what reporting requirements they need to see coming back to them to demonstrate impact. And they tend to, perhaps with their own charitable foundation, have a more collaborative and perhaps more fulfilling relationship with the charities that they are supporting or projects they're supporting and the ability to have a bit more of a dialogue about how they can help and how their own charity can collaborate with maybe a wider charity that's more operational. From the um, conversations I've been having, it seems that that is the way that people want to go now, particularly from the entrepreneurial clients who are used to getting things done quickly and in the way they want. So how easy is it for somebody to set up their own charity or foundation? A charity is regulated. It's regulated by, well, in England, it's regulated by the Charity Commission for England and Wales. In Scotland, we've got the Scottish Charity Regulator. So depending on where you are based within Great Britain, then it depends which regulator we'd be seeking to register a charity with. Um, But assuming for the moment we're talking about regulation by the Charity Commission for England and Wales, it can be quite a drawn out process. The, The trustees really need to have a very good idea about exactly what they want the charity to achieve and importantly, which charitable purposes they want their charity to focus on. They might need help from us or from another advisor to help refine exactly what they want the charity to do and how they want to achieve that. But importantly, the charity must exist for specific charitable purposes and they're set out in law. So, for example, advancement of education, health, alleviation of poverty are just just a few, but it also must exist for the public benefit. So provided that we can demonstrate that to the Charity Commission, then we can get a, a charity set up Um, so that it can start um, fulfilling those purposes. Because, Sarah, you said it's a a long, drawn-out process, but for for many people, this is part of their overall strategy. So I feel people are sort of happy to accommodate that, to get something that really is for the family and for successive generations. But because it's going to be for the longer term, that they want to ensure that they're not going to be constrained later on by what they commit to on day one. So do you have very flexible objectives in order to make sure people can come in within them at a future time? Yes, so the founder of a new charitable foundation needs to be very clear about the charitable purposes that they want to further. And it might be that at the beginning of this then they're actually not so clear about that so it's always possible to set up a charity with general charitable purposes if you want and that may be appropriate if you want your foundation to have a wide remit and the flexibility to support a wide range of causes. I think that tends to be the sentiment people want a general all-encompassing clause but they also want to make sure that there are key sectors that will never get any money from them or Um, key areas that will never get any money from them. And it may very well be 
that that particular sector is taken care of by another family trust or by another member of the family. So are you able to exclude specifically, say, animals or particular geographies and still say it's for a public purpose? Yes, so you'd either achieve that by being more specific in the objects clause about which charitable purposes were going to be pursued by that particular foundation. Or if you if the preference was still to have very wide general charitable purposes, narrowing those purposes down further can be done through the use of a grant eligibility document or a strategic grant giving document that sits under the governing document of the charity and is something that the trustees can amend from time to time. But it really focuses on exactly which causes the charity is going to be supporting and criteria for the kind of causes that are important to the trustees. I guess whatever way the family wants to do this, we can really look at the best way of them achieving it. There is a way to really accommodate everyone's wishes here, provided it's for a public benefit. Yes, that's right. So the public benefit is all important. A charity, a charitable foundation can't exist if it doesn't exist for the public benefit. How long does it actually take? Because obviously people are dying every day. How long is this going to take to actually set up and be fully operational? very much depends on what kind of charity somebody's trying to set up. So if it's an operational charity that's going to be running its own services, so perhaps, you know, healthcare services or education services or providing facilities for something, then they're going to be more complex applications and the Charity Commission is going to want to dive deeper into exactly what the charity is going to be doing. But in the case of a grant-making charity, there's still, of course, high level of scrutiny at the application stage about exactly how those stated charitable purposes are going to be fulfilled and whether or not the charity exists for the public benefit. But at operational level, there's a lot less to it. So so grant-making charities, which is what we're largely talking about today, tend to be much quicker to get registered with the Charity Commission. But there still is sometimes quite a long lead-in period while the Commission considers the application And there may well be some supplementary questions raised by the Commission before the charity achieves registration status. And the trustees of of my charity that I'm setting up for my family and who are going to actually determine when the money is going to be distributed and, and who it's going to be given to, can I appoint anyone to be a trustee? You can do. So with a family foundation, usually there'll be several members of the family on that board of trustees. Can I just ask what sort of assets can be put into the charity? Obviously cash. Yes. So, of course, it's it's common for people to put cash into their charity. And in fact, it's really a prerequisite to put in some cash into the charity. Again, it depends on how the charity is going to be set up. But for some forms of charities, you need to demonstrate to the Charity Commission that you've met the minimum threshold for registration. So that's usually £5,000. But it's also possible to donate other assets to charities. So we see clients donating artworks, shares, properties. Now, it's, it's possible to do that. But at trustee level, and of course, the person donating is likely to be one of those trustees, they do need to be able to demonstrate that they've given some 
thought to whether or not it's appropriate for the charity to accept that particular asset. So they, there needs to be an overall net benefit to the charity and acceptance of those assets must be in the charity's best interests. So that's, of course, usually the case, but it's a process that the trustees would need to go through. Sarah, once the, the assets are in the charity, perhaps they're sort of sold and we're now sitting on a big cash pile which has to be invested. Are there any restrictions as to how it has to be invested? Can it be invested in accordance with you know, traditional investment criteria or does it have to be in just government securities? Well, the trustees need to have an investment policy and often investment advisors will help the trustees to formulate that policy and work with them on that. And that's important that actually the trustees must take advice on how to invest and the best investment strategy, which will of course depend on how much the charity has to invest and also what the charity's priorities are and how quickly they need the funding to further their charitable purposes. So that needs to be up to date, the investment policy. And also they must, of course, keep up to date at all times with the valuations of their investments. And that's something that should be looked at regularly at trustee meetings. Well, thank you for that, Sarah. Maybe you can share with our audience today what else could go wrong in setting up your own charity. People are always um, or often very worried about any adverse publicity when they've set up a charity um, and there's been a number of course of charity scandals over the last few years and a lot of talk about how public trust and confidence in charities has dipped but what I always say when I'm asked that question is that as long as you are a diligent trustee and the rest of the trustees that you've appointed are also likewise very diligent and prudent and are aware of their trustee duties and responsibilities and the charity is therefore very well governed and as long as you take advice on matters that do not fall within your own area of expertise then you can't go too far wrong particularly with a grant making charity. I think the other thing that I see sometimes go wrong is that people start up their own charities with very good intentions. They um, have a lot of enthusiasm for the causes they want to support and the way that they want to achieve that. But people have very busy lives and become can become distracted or perhaps there's been one driver of the charity within a family and others are less keen to take over that mantle when the time comes. Uh, I, I was just thinking that sort of that should always really be on the agenda at the trustees meeting, presumably who's going to be taking responsibility for the charity? Yes, of course. And it's the trustees, the current trustees who are responsible, have that ultimate responsibility for the charity. But below the trustees, and this will depend a bit on exactly what the charity is doing to further its charitable purposes, but it's often very helpful to have somebody who is managing the charity on a day-to-day -day basis, even if it's just at an administrative level. So dealing with the requests for, for grants that might be coming in, dealing with scheduling trustee meetings, dealing with taking any necessary advice or furthering things between trustee meetings. And I guess that can protect the privacy as well of the, the family behind the, the charity, if that's what they want to do. Yes, because all correspondence could be directed through a, you know, a centralised email address with, with an administrator picking up those communications.
it, it, if you're a trustee of this other charity, it will it will be public you know public knowledge it will be on the public register your name your name will be there connected to the charity right you've always got to put your own name there is that right if you're a trustee yes now not sometimes founders don't want to be a trustee they want to donate to their foundation but they're happy to entrust others to be the trustees mm. and sarah is this something we can help clients with we can help with the day-to-day we can help with those administrative requirements we can help of course with the strategic advice and the practicalities that need to be taken care of one thing lots of our clients like us to do is to actually attend board meetings so we can um, actually hear their deliberations we can help support them um, and we can help action take action points away and we can help with that as well well sarah thank you Um, I think we've touched on quite a few matters and hopefully thrown light on some of the issues and questions that that I'm being asked. But it's very reassuring to know that you can cover all these issues and I'm sure deal with a lot more sides. Thank you for joining us today and do get in touch if you want to hear more. And we look forward to you joining us for our next podcast. So. For now, it's goodbye from us. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. <laughs>